Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Ed Ehrenberg. Ed is the founder and principal developer at ePage, a full-stack mobile consulting company based in Redondo Beach, California. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Garrick. It's a pleasure being here. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming uh, on the show and talking with me today. My pleasure. And this is something I listened to your first few episodes, and I really think you have a, something really great going on here. I'm so glad to, to hear that. It means a lot to me coming from you. So a little bit of background on how Ed and I met. I believe I met Ed for the first time at NS Coders Santa Monica. Uh, we meet there every Tuesday night at Spitfire Grill. Is that what it's called? That's right, yeah. And it was one of the first... Uh, you know, iOS or Apple development, you know, platform uh, meetups in LA that I went to. And Ed was there helping everybody. He was very knowledgeable. He was one of the last people to leave. So was I. And I walked Ed to his car and I told him about, you know, my story and where I was at. And he made me feel comfortable as if it was something that I could achieve. My goal being, you know, being a developer, being an iOS developer. And, um, you know, he, he, he took off and I, you know, I went home that night, but I remember just feeling like, wow, like there, here's a person who's successful in this, com you know, community. And, uh, he's very open and welcoming me to the community and making me feel like I could be a part of it or I am a part of it and that I could do it. Um, and then, you know, I just kept seeing Ed at all the different, you know, LA Swift meetup, Coco Heads. Uh, and then finally, I, I think I just, you know, after bugging Ed a, a bunch, you know, hey, Ed, what's going on? What are you up to? Finally, um, you know, I launched the podcast and I said, Ed, I got to interview you. So, again, thank you so much for being here and being, um, you know, being kind and being a good member, valued member of the community. Oh, my pleasure. And it's great to be able to give back to people. You know, I, I know everyone started where you were at one point in their lives. And so <laughs> having that extra help, that little bit to push you on that journey is something I think we all appreciate. Yeah, and you know, you really do give people um, a lot of help. Uh, one of the last NS coders I was at, you sat with someone, I can't remember his name, Sean maybe, and mm. he had some issue with some audio he was trying to record and play back, and you literally sat there and, uh, you know, helped him kind of solve that problem. I think it was like an hour. We were, you know, NS coders <laughs> ends at 10. We didn't leave until like 11. Yeah, it was definitely a late night, but, you know, when you get into the groove, you just want to keep going. <laughs> That's right. So, Ed... Uh, tell us about ePage. It's a consulting uh, company in Redondo mm -hmm. Beach. What what do you guys work on mostly? So a lot of our work these days is mobile. You know that seems to be what our clients want. Uh, we do iOS and Android, so you know, we don't play preference there. But you know, a lot of our clients come to us with a lot of iOS first jobs, and so I'm generally get the first crack at whatever the new project uh, is going to be. We also get a lot of repeat clients who have come to us, you know, worked with us before, and they want the next app or they want their upgrade. Um, some of them come just for the consulting part of this, which is like, hey, I have this idea. I need help gestating it. I need to figure out how am I going to bring this to market? What are my bottlenecks? How do I, what are my steps? And so we work with them to kind of identify um, what their product really is about, you know, pare it down, give them a good sense of what it's going to take to develop it. And ballpark at least in terms of the challenges that are going to be ahead for them. 
Awesome. So have you always owned your own consulting company or I, mean, I guess I guess not, you know, when you were first born. But I mean, is that as a developer, have you always worked um, as your own kind of independent, like with a consulting company or did you ever work for like a, another company programming? Uh, not as a programmer. You know, I kind of picked up programming on my own long, long ago. I'll give you the history sometime. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the company itself started in kind of a gestated idea in 93. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a while ago. Uh, I happened to come across um, this little app called NCSA Mosaic. I think it was at version 0.2 at the time, which was the very first web browser. Okay, um, They wow. were the foundation that kind of put this together. And, you know, I started poking around, and it was very few websites to find. In fact, they were just basic lists. And if you found one, you were lucky to be able to link to maybe another one. And back then, HTML was so simple. There were just links and pictures and... You flash things and stuff like that. There weren't even any table views back then. So there was not a lot to work with. So pages were pretty simple, and you could really construct them yourself without too much trouble. So I started poking around with that for a while and realized, hey, this really kind of brings the ability to link stuff together because I had worked with some of the precursors, the tools and stuff that uh, allowed people to find things on the web and or, or pre-web on the Internet uh, and connect to, and get data and things. And it was never really very easy to do. You kind of really had to know all the ins and outs of the tools. And now we've got, obviously, web browsers that can point anybody to anything. And I thought this will be something that even my mom could use someday. So I got a friend together, and we started brainstorming ideas. I said, what can we do with this? There's got to be something. I think our original idea was putting ski maps on the Internet. Nice. I uh, thought, hey, you yeah, that would be a good, good excuse to travel. Oh, I used to ski a lot. Yeah, nice. so I'd, I'd travel around a lot. And, uh, you know, it, it was not a lot. Yeah. It was always hard to find stuff. I mean, you would, if you wanted to go to a new place, you'd have to, like, write to them or get a brochure and kind of find oh, out wow. more details about it. And, you know, now you just Google it and whatever and find everything you possibly want about it. Right. So we, we banded ideas around and eventually hit upon the concept of classified ads. Okay. Thought this would be an area that's kind of ripe for reinvention. Right now you pay a fortune. This is back in the 90s. You pay a fortune to put a little advertisement on the newspaper that probably nobody's going to see. Hey, let's figure out how a way to make that automated so we can put a database of advertisements online that people could categorize them and browse through them and reply to them and I know, kind of get all that nice conveniences that you, know, you take for granted. Today they're all over the place, but nobody had really done this yet. So I wrote my own database because there were no databases back then. Um, that were really webs supported, at least like none that we could afford. AWS or something like that. Yeah, not like, not like at least something we could afford. You know, we weren't going to go out and buy some IBM-based, you know, or Microsoft-based big-end database. Things were pretty expensive back in those days. Uh, ended up getting a leased line, I think, in my place, and we hooked that up, and that was like twenty-five hundred dollars to wow. set up a a fifty-six kilobit per second leased line. Oh my gosh! Yeah, crazy. But and the software tools and stuff are all relatively expensive in that era. But you know we invested a little bit, put it together, ran it on my old Mac 2 CI, put some Unix on that, and uh, built the company around that basic platform of our custom developed software connected to an internet through this relatively expensive line, and somehow people found us. You know we so got the word. Was yeah, that got, was that like a pre Craigslist Craigslist kind of a thing? Oh like yeah. You class, wow. That's before really Craigslist, cool. before eBay. Uh, eBay, I remember co they copied stuff from us back in that era. It was auction web back in those days before people got it renamed as eBay. We used to be at a site called 
it was eBay or auctionweb.ebay.com or something like that. It was some combination of their service. And, you know, we would introduce one feature and a couple of weeks later we'd see it show up on auction web and then they'd have some interesting feature and a few weeks later it would show up on ePage. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, it was kind cool. of a- so you had this idea to create classifieds uh, you know, on the web as a new form of business. And mm-hmm. from that, you created your consulting company because you were developing this software, these technologies, and obviously honing your skills. Yep. And then from that, you created uh, ePage. And then eventually, with this whole movement towards mobile, you, you naturally moved into that space. Yeah, when we went rode the whole bust and boom cycle, boom and bust, uh, through the 2000 era. Um, and pretty much decided we were going to leave the classified service sort of out there. So if you ever visit epage.com, you're going to see this 15, 20-year-old I have. <laughs> classified ad service, and they go, what is this? But <laughs> we just felt out of nostalgia. We wanted to keep that up. That's awesome. Um, you know, we got into consulting a lot more, and we're developing services and sites for other companies. And then, of course, even before the iPhone came out, uh, we kind of look, started looking around for the next thing. Um, there were these little phones that were based on Linux. And Palm you OS could, or something, right? Yeah, kind of late Palm days, early. Um, there was a device called the Zorus that was a Linux-based uh, device that we were toggling around with for a while. And I thought, yeah, maybe something could be built out of this because there's definitely a lot of uh, power in this device. Maybe not a huge consumer market yet, but something you know will get better over time. So we started tinkering with that. And, of course, when the iPhone came out, I was like, oh, okay. That's the future. And as soon as the SDK came out, you know, I dove headfirst into it and started learning all the ins and outs of iOS development and wrote a few little apps to get our feet wet and then started talking to clients about, hey, do you guys want an app? We can do something for you. Oh, that's so great. I had the original iPhone and I was just so consumed by it, but I never thought to myself, like, I could program for this thing. I watched Dub Dub, you know, Mm -hmm. when it was announced. I watched it when... They talked about web apps. I watched it when they um, talked about the SDK, but it never occurred to me that I should, you know, program for it. So it's so cool that you were there from the start. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey. I remember <clears throat> every iteration of the uh, operating system on the phone made huge leaps back then. Now it's a little bit more incremental in nature, but uh, just the power that you would get going from, say, the original iPhone to, say, a, a 3GS up right. to the iPhone 4, there was a lot of new features that we would have to dive into and start to talking to clients about, about, okay, here's what's available now. What do you guys want? So I want to back up a little bit and learn where Ed Ehrenberg actually started learning to program. Is this something that you picked up, you know, in college or in high school or even before high school? Well, back when I was (laughs) younger, uh, the programming community was very, very different. It was mostly professional-based programmers. You worked for corporations, you had degrees, uh, you got certifications, you know, you basically worked in a corporate environment. And that, you know, I'm talking, I was a sixth grader back where, then. Where were you? I was in elementary school. In, uh, in California? Yeah, in California, yeah. Okay. So I grew up out here. Oh, okay. Uh, so in the California. LA area. Okay, great. And uh, there was this class that was being offered for sixth graders or kind of the more advanced class, and we could get into this environment in the junior high school where they would teach us about some more more advanced math stuff, but they also had these little calculators. I shouldn't say little. They were actually kind of like big, like little desk sizes, like small notebooks they are today, um, sitting there on the side of the room, and nobody was using them. 
And so you know, talk to the teacher about them and says, yeah, these are programmable calculators. Here's how you use it. And they kind of taught us a little bit about how to program it. And this was um, punch cards. You had these little blue cards wow. that were maybe eight inches tall. And you had the little chicks that you would punch out with your bent paper clip uh, in order to program these things up. And it was all machine code. So you were writing opcodes for this, you know, store. Here's a number, 8-bit number. You know, push this into register 1, add it to register 2, and, and little things like that. So it was very, very low level. Wow. But I kind of saw the appeal of it, and I started writing punch card things. And eventually, I wrote this program that required eight punch cards, and that was the limit of the, of the machine. <laughs> so I started finally having to learn how to optimize things as well. I'm four lines over. How can I remove four? four lines out of my program out of this to make it work. Interesting. So is that, that like was... a TI-83 type of a thing? Like kind of like what became, because that's the programmable calculator I used in, uh, oh, in yeah. high school. It was like a TI-83. <laughs> Way precursor to that stuff. Um, <laughs> imagine um, it's like a probably about the size of a small typewriter. Oh, and it had okay. this little card reader sitting next to it, and you would slide the cards through, and if there was a problem, you wouldn't know about it until the program didn't work, so you'd have to go figure out which chip uh, chip you didn't punch out properly, and you'd go through it by hand. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so you're in high school, sixth grade. You're yeah. learning this punch card computer, you know, programmable calculator, and you're like, this is pretty cool. So what did you what did you do next? What was available to you at that time? To, to you know, kind of no progress? personal computers. There wasn't really much you could learn from. There was no online anything. So um, pretty much it sort of sat there for a while until um, I was a little bit later in junior high. When I was actually there. They got one of the uh, first Trash 80 computers. Those were the Tandy TRS-80s. <laughs> we used to affectionately call the Trash 80. And it had basic on it. It had 4K of RAM and a little monitor, and you could sit there and you could program up something and uh, watch it work. And then the class, you know, the, the, student, the professor or the teacher at the time would say, okay, that's the end of this. And he'd turn it off and you'd have to come back the next day and code it all right back up again because there was no way to save it. Oh my gosh. But we had fun. There were a few of us, I remember, huddled around it at times to kind of learn a little bit more about it and learn basic. And, and then eventually a friend of mine got an Apple II. Wow. Which was a big deal back then. I mean, those were over $2,000, and most kids really didn't have access to it, and he got it, and they would, I would come over, and we'd sit there and code in BASIC, and I learned a little bit of assembly language and how to really code uh, at the lower level on the Apple II, and it was running a 6502 processor, which, you know, a little 8-bit processor, which you could wrap your head around. There were only that many instructions that you could run within an assembly, and it didn't take that long to kind of work your way through all different ways of using it, and uh, start writing code for it. Of course, so, that's so about it's, a, Yeah, what, sorry. No, but what kind of programs were you writing for that? Oh, you know, little uh, mini games, I think. You know, we're, we're in seventh grade. That's <laughs> so cool. we're a little of high-level interest. But uh, I think we did some calculation things. We said, hey, let's do some math things on it. So we wrote a little program to, um, you know, because we were to learn into various math at the time. We said, oh, we can write a program to kind of run this, uh, solve this for us. And We'll write up a little basic program to kind of run through that. Did you continue your interest uh, all throughout high school? You know, I was interested, but other things came up. Eventually, I think we got our own Apple IIe uh, just before I went off to college. And so that was more time to explore. Uh, and I brought that with me to college and started writing some programs a little bit there. But uh, it took some 
programming classes in college, but it didn't feel like the thing I wanted to do. Interesting. You know, even though I was very good at it, I guess, at the time, I don't think that it, I ever thought of it as a career because I think even in that era, programming wasn't really this thing that people did on their own. You went to work at a corporation and mm. you did whatever coding was going to be involved in a corporation. And at that time, hardware was king. That's when the microcomputers were, or mini computers were kind of coming out and um, personal computers were starting to get out there and you had your homebrew clubs and people were hacking on the hardware side of things. And software was kind of the afterthought. Interesting. Um, so I think I got the hardware bug in that time frame, and that's what I wanted to focus on in college. So I you know, took all the computer design and development classes and uh, hardware engineering. And when I got out, um, I wanted to stay in the hardware space, and I ended up working in aerospace industry at TRW, wow. uh, where we had a great group of people. We developed uh, chips and computer systems for spacecraft. Wow which in that era was relatively new. There were most of the computer or systems that were up in space at that time were basically called bent pipes. You send a signal up, you do a little bit of processing and send something down and there really wasn't very many smarts up there. So this was a kind of a new program that was being funded both through DARPA and through um, internal research development work to say, hey, let's take computer systems as they exist today, harden them up to be in space, make them very fault tolerant so that uh, they would be self-correcting and self-detecting if there were problems um, in the processor. Because once you put something up in space, it's in the harshness of the environment up there. So you get radiation effects and uh, things blow out and components fail um, at the lowest level. And you have to be able to try to detect that and still work through it. No technician is going to go up there and try to fix it for you. So you're working on pretty significant hardware for pretty interesting companies. Um, but then you transition to starting i mean you're looking at the web and you're like this is pretty interesting and now you're creating websites i mean how did you make that transition why did you do that well in, in the aerospace industry things tend to take a long time oh. you know we did a lot of interesting research and development projects built a lot of boards and systems and chips and stuff and actually got a few things to fly i had a last one of the last things i worked on was on cassini so that's over at Saturn right now, taking all kinds of pictures. And, right. and we did the data recorder for that. So it's a um, big solid-state uh, computer system that's recording all the instruments and information that's coming from the sensors that are up there, storing that up in a robust way, and then slowly trickling that back to Earth. Um, so I'm kind of proud of the fact that we got that working, and it's still working today, which is pretty amazing. Wow. But you're talking 10-year life cycles, you know, from when you get involved in a project to when it's hopefully maybe ready to fly. And in many cases, there was a decision gets made, you know, six years into a program, we go, okay, that's enough. Let's move on to something else. So I kind of think I felt in some ways the little bit of frustration and how long it took to get things done. And I saw this web space as a way to tickle my other talents in the software side of things as I still did a little bit of coding here and there, but it wasn't for any real practical purposes uh, until I said, hey, I'm going to go do this for real. And uh, had one partner uh, that uh, we started the company together with and mostly focused on developing things, you know, internally, working on building up that software base so that we had a solid foundation of code that we could work with. And I think the consulting part kind of fell out of it afterwards because there weren't that many other people interested at that time in having websites made or having services, you know, built for the web. It probably took a few years of our 
internal development for, we started hearing from others who said, yeah, can you do something like this for us? Right. Yeah, I relate to what you were saying about the sort of development cycle of being very long when you're talking about the like Cassini projects and things like that. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I didn't like about uh, practicing law was it moved very slowly. And it was one of the things I immediately liked about programming was I wrote some code, I built it, I ran it, and I saw the result of my work immediately. Yeah. And that was so satisfying. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you get a lot of pleasure from not only being able to show that something works, but being able to show that off to somebody else and say, look, this is what I did. You know, in the aerospace industry, you don't really get a lot of chance for that. So that's great. So you've been doing, you, I guess you've been doing ePage. I mean, it, it kind of took a while for ePage to get to where it is now to be this consulting firm, but mm-hmm. you've been doing it since then, uh, since you moved from the aerospace field into software development, you've been, you've sort of been independent the whole time. Just basically, yeah. I and mean, we've worked on a wide variety of interesting projects. Um, some of them have been short-term things where they only last, you know, a few months. Others have been year-long plus projects where, you know, the work just keeps coming and we keep evolving and adding and, and such to the project. And as you've seen with the, you know, iOS development, you're never done. <laughs> you right. you finish a project, you get it out there, and the next thing you know, there's going to be okay. We want to add these new features, or there's been OS upgrade, and we want to, you know, fix things that maybe changed because the operating system changed. So, it's a continual development process. So, as you said, it sounds like you started with iOS development pretty much right when the SDK was released. Did you actually make any web applications when the iPhone first came out? When we first started working on it, that was the only thing available, you know, was kind of the web-based apps. And so we tried a little bit with that and realized it's really not that satisfying. You don't really make anything real right. um, with these kind of apps. And so our initial work was delayed, I think, on the iPhone until the SDK came out. What was the first um, native application you made for the iPhone? Oh, my remember? God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was called iClassifieds. Cool. And we thought, hey, let's take our classified service. It's still running there on the, uh, the internet. Database. Right. Let's uh, try to port that over to a mobile uh, environment, make it native. And, um, you know, I'm back in Objective-C pre-2.0 days, I think, even. It was around that time frame. But, oh, you know, OS 2, 3 on the, uh, opera, on the iPhone was pretty crude. And I admit, I would never want to show that code off to anybody else <laughs> these days. But learning Objective-C was a... An interesting challenge, you know, the, for those of us who had had a, maybe a longer history of programming, I had learned a wide variety of languages, and uh, fortunately, I'd had some time with Smalltalk, which is kind of the precursor to Objective-C. So okay. when I first saw it, I thought, this looks very familiar. You know, this whole message passing, everything's an object kind of environment. Uh, it was just more about, I guess, the syntax. And I, I think in general, um, there's the language part of development, and then there's your your uh, frameworks and stuff in the environment in which you have to code in. Right. And learn the language is one thing, particularly for people who have been maybe coding for a while, or if you at least come from some of the coding background, you're going to learn a new language. A lot of the concepts are still there, but to learn how to program, say, for the iPhone, learning all the frameworks and how you compose an app that's efficient and works well with all the frameworks that are out there, I think that's probably the bigger hurdle. Right. Definitely. So then you started learning Objective-C at that time when the SDK came out. Yes, definitely. Okay. What are before we move to Swift? What are some other languages? You said Basic. You said Smalltalk. What are some other languages that you've worked with? 
Wow. Well, Assembly, various platforms, um, Pascal, C, C++, Java. I remember going to one of the first Java talks. Uh, this was back still when I was at TRW, and we were trying to decide, hey, is this a, a platform that's maybe something we can use for the computer programs, and computer systems that we were doing? So I went to a conference, and uh, God, I wish I could remember his name, but he was the guy who wrote the first Java book. Wow. was talking at this thing, and he gave a talk about what Java is and what they envisioned and how they originally had this set-top box environment that they thought that they were going to be building this for and realized that it's a broader platform than that, and they're kind of bringing it out there so everybody can make write-once-run-anywhere kind of right. environment. Um, and because we all know where that ended up today. But it was a, it's kind of an eye-opening environment. Uh, first time I'd really delved into, um, I think, the... I won't call it corporate development, but it was a bigger enterprise level push. Most of the stuff I had done in C or Pascal or C++ was more on a personal level, you know, smaller apps or things that I thought I could do for myself as opposed to working on a larger team when it was clear that Java was intended for much broader development platforms. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about Swift given your experience with Objective-C and all these other, other languages because... I think it'll be really enlightening on, you know, your perspective on Swift, at, you know, sort of as this new kind of modern language and um, all the excitement around it. Uh, but before we do, I sure. want to thank one of my Learn Swift LA members. His name's Dorian Matar, and he was one of the first people, along with Mark Sim, uh, who uh, made his space available to us to meet. And if it wasn't for him, because it was actually the first place we, we ended up meeting, uh, and he has a you know, place uh, sort of east east side of uh, L.A. And uh, we we met there. It's actually his house. He welcomed us into his house. And he, it was, a you know, maybe a few of us at the time. And, man, if he did not make the space available, um, I don't know. I just, I don't know where I would have met. And because he made his place available to uh, the meetup, we were able to kind of get to where we are now. And so, yeah, he was really the, um, one of the first people to to open his space up, and actually we were that's where we met for the first time. Uh, he has an app on the App Store for iPad called Music Cali, and I'll link uh, to it in the show notes. And he's also a real estate uh, or a realtor, a real estate agent. So uh, yes. if I have some information on him, I'll link to him. So Dorian, thank you so much for making your space available to Learn Swift LA. Uh, it meant. It means so much, and it meant so much. And yeah, without you, I'm not sure if we'd be, you know, as far as we've we've gotten so far. So thanks again. All right, so Ed, tell us about your experience with Swift. It came out June 2014. Right. Uh, it was a surprise to everybody, uh, unless Definitely. somehow maybe you had some inside information, right? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Not at the time. Right. Um. I don't think anybody <laughs> knew it was coming out. Right. Well, it was interesting. Um, in hindsight, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, which I think is a great way to learn and keep up on the community, but sometimes I get a little behind. And so I remember listening to some catch-up uh, podcasts on things I hadn't had a chance to listen to, and you could hear people talking about, hey, you know, they made this change in Objective-C. This is kind of weird. Why did they do this? Um, what could be the reason? And there was a little bit of speculation. Hey, maybe they're going to try to embrace other languages. Maybe they're going to, you know, put Java on the platform back again, or maybe something like that, where they're envisioning this these concepts of embracing more than just the Objective C uh, platform. Those little moves that they were making were kind of speculated about. Wow. But I don't think anybody 
nobody nailed Swift per se, but right. just to hear those in hindsight is interesting because obviously they still didn't know. Interesting. Wow, you're the first person to, to say something like that. So yeah, I mean, because when things come out, there are some rumors, but with the language, maybe it was easier to keep it secret. Yeah. But I, I wasn't, I was not involved at all in the development community before Swift. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought about it at all. And when they announced it at DubDub, it seemed like everybody was shocked. Well, I was there. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, I was sitting right behind Presser. I remember looking over the shoulder of, uh, um, you know, Brett Mossberg and a, a few others who were who were right there uh, with their notebooks and assistants and stuff, all getting ready. And we heard all the stuff beforehand. Then all of a sudden, the Swift announcement came out, and there was a bit of a <gasps> moment. <laughs> you know, the the one more thing doesn't typically happen in this way. But uh, when they started talking out, there were cheers and there were some gasps and there were some like ah. Oh. Like, you know, developers maybe felt a little overwhelmed already and said, I don't want to learn another language. But oh, I think the overall community uh, at that point was it was applause. And every time another component of that came out, everybody was uh, excited about it. And then they revealed the program for the week, which was going to involve all these Swift classes. Because if you've ever been to a WWDC, they, they kind of redact it. You don't really know what the topics are going to be until you're actually there. Oh, okay. I didn't, they I don't, didn't think it, about that. Yeah, they don't want to reveal because they're often very insightful about, oh, we're going to talk about this new technology. Well, nobody knew it was there yet until they announced it at the um, State of the uh, Union, State of the Platform address. So right. when they uh, revealed the Swift, all of a sudden they said, yeah, we're going to have a class tomorrow. We're going to talk about Swift 1 and then Swift 2, Swift 3. And those were so oversubscribed. I mean, the rooms were standing room only wow. to get in there. Yeah, I mean, they had the uh, intro intermediate and advanced and mm -hmm. I actually just watched them again uh, over like a little vacation I had over the weekend so what were you thinking when you like what was your initial thought or sort of you know what was going through your head when you it was first announced and during I, that week I was pretty excited about it but I also realized that I was there to learn a whole lot more there were a lot of other things I wanted to get out of the the, the week and such and so I thought well I can't delve too much into this at the moment but you know what I don't want to get left behind because this is clearly something Apple's going to be emphasizing in the future. So let's take advantage of as much as possible while I'm here to get it. So I would go back to the room to my place at, in the evening, and you get out of WWC, you've got all the uh, sessions you go to, and then there's the after events, and you're chatting with people. You might get back to your room around 11 or later. Um, and so what I decided to do is I was going to read the book. Oh, awesome. And so I spent the next two or three nights just pouring through it, you know, staying up as late as I could to get as much much through it as I could. And then the next morning, you'd be at breakfast. They'd have a nice breakfast for everybody if you got there early enough. Um, and people would be sitting there and chatting and talking and um, chating ideas and stuff. So that's what a lot of the conversation was around with Swift. And I was like, well, what does this mean? How are we going to use it? You know, What did you think about this? And so you want to kind of be involved in that part of the conversation. Wow, that's really smart. That's a really good way to approach a conference. So, yeah. and then there's our WWDC parties um, application too. I don't know if you downloaded that, but uh, there's like, yeah. <laughs> there's that uh, app too, like a companion app made by an independent uh, developer, Gennady Okrin, I think. Yeah, um, I definitely think, uh, advise anybody who has the opportunity to go, whether you're an experienced developer or a first timer, you know, definitely get onto the scene after um, because that's where you meet a lot of the other people there and you can really make better connections. And, you know, when you're there just listening to lectures and stuff, the talks, it's great to try to absorb what you can, but it's the personal connections you make after. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to go to Dub Dub one day. So did you immediately, it sounds like you knew it was going to be important. You said that you knew Apple was going to be emphasizing it. So did you decide that you would start um, just learning it or actually start implementing it or kind of what's yeah. going through your mind in terms of actually using the language? Well, I knew it would be a challenge because uh, as soon as I got back, obviously we had clients who we said, where have you been all week? No, they knew we it's going to be a good way, but had work and projects that were going on and couldn't just turn them around and say, oh, we're going to start writing this new language. We're going to scrap everything. So Objective-C for me continued for quite a while, but I've sort of reached around and says, how can we figure out how to integrate a new Swift into our development platform? And first thought was to just write our own app. And so I started talking about it a little bit and we had um, some internal projects that we're kind of doing. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to scrap what I've done. I'm just going to rewrite this in Swift and just see where it goes. And I think that was helpful, just diving in and really trying to learn and suffer the issues that you have when trying to learn a new language. You know, I think a lot of my early Swift code was pretty much translated Objective-C. And you need to get over the nuances of the language, like optionals and the syntax and stuff like that. But there's a paradigm shift, I think, that one has to go through with any platform or language to say, what's the right way to code with this language? Right. You know, use its power, use its features and capabilities um, to make your coding life easier, as opposed to just saying, well, I'm going to use, you know, Objective-C was very easy in the first days of Swift to just write land code look like Objective-C code. You right. knew the structures, you knew the formats and stuff, and you just knew how to learn how to translate one language into the other. And it took me probably through that project before I started really thinking about, you know, I should start doing things a little differently. I should be more swifty in my thinking about how to write apps. And right around that time, I was very fortunate that we had a new project come up and they were had heard about Swift and all such and said, yeah, we're going to do it in Swift, right? And I said, oh, oh, sure. Yeah, of course we will. So that project turned into one of my longer term ones, which has really been a lot of fun to work on. And... Um, What's I that project called? It's called Comic Blitz. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. It's um, basically, think of it as uh, Netflix for comic books. Oh, awesome. So you pay a monthly subscription, and uh, you can all you can read. Uh, it's basically every publisher they've got. They've got uh, maybe almost 20 publishers now, and new stuff coming up out all the time. They um, There's a now demo mode, so you can kind of go in there and get a taste of it before you can make the commitment to say, yeah, I really like what's the content here. I love the environment. Let me just pay my subscription fee, and then it's month to month, or I think there's a yearly one now. You can just pay in advance. And um, That's cool. We'll link to that uh, in the show notes. So you're still working on that project. That's like uh, That was your first project in Swift, and you're still obviously maintaining it and updating it. Yeah, yeah, we did just did the iPhone version a few about two months ago or so, so that's uh, was a little bit of a shift in focus. I wonder um, if uh, Rene Ritchie of iMore uses Comic Blitz, because I know he's a big comic book fan. Yeah, maybe he listens to the podcast and he'll check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say to Objective-C developers that are hesitant about learning Swift? I mean, I guess it made sense early on during um, Swift 1, uh, 1.2, to now I think 2.2, but now we're getting into... 3.0, what would you say to Objective-C developers? Is it is now the time or are they safe to wait a little or or just what do you think about that? Well, I think if you're still on the fence and you really haven't taken that plunge now, you know, we're close enough to WWDC that 
probably the sweep 3.0 would be an opportune time to say, okay, it's solid now. You know, they're looking at building the binary into the operating system. So the backward binary compatibility issues that, you know, you, right now every Swift app that you send gets bundled in this package. You know, I don't know, it's like 8 meg or 10 meg or something like that of uh, Swift framework that makes it all work. After OS 10, I believe, um, that'll all get built in the operating system and Swift apps will get that much more efficient. Is that like bytecode? Um, no, I think it's just the runtime oh, part okay. of the Swift language that's uh, sitting there. Okay. And um, it makes it all work with the rest of the frameworks and such. So there's a lot to the Swift. Swift, the language, is only a small part of it. It's the Swift, the standard library, the package stuff that um, really adds all the power to the language. Interesting. Okay, so wait, is that... That's not something you work with day-to-day uh, -day when you're developing your application. It is. You just don't often know that you are. Okay. You think it's part of the language, but it's really not. You know, if you're working with, um, you know, dictionaries or arrays and stuff, and they're really not necessarily part of the language, they're part of the standard library so that when you um, get down to what the language is actually providing versus what the standard library provides, there's this thinner line that separates the two out. Okay, so that's like the basic types, double float, int, uh, array, dictionary. That's all part of the standard library. Uh, you're not. Well, how do you how do you sort of make the distinction between standard library and the language, the syntax, and all that that you're using? I think that's part of the beauty of Swift is that you don't have to. Okay. Since it all comes as one unit, um, the framework or the, the standard library and Swift itself is sort of like. Um, you know, C, if you ever were C programmers, most people didn't write a lot of C without some sort of standard lib that would give okay. them all the extra features that uh, maybe the language itself doesn't provide off the box. And I see. So but, is that you know, something you kind of had to deal with in Objective-C? Uh, not so much. Um, that the language itself would compile down since the operating system, everything was built on, on those frameworks and Objective-C language. Um, there wasn't a, a runtime. Um, a standard library that's available in, with Objective-C. Okay. So what would you say to Objective-C developers that like mm -hmm. that when they switch to Swift, it'll be kind of different, but also what would be sort of familiar? Well, um, you know, coding is coding in my perspective that you have a problem space that you're trying to solve and how you factor that down into various components and the things that, that need to be implemented in order to achieve that goal pretty much the same practices, and Swift is just another way of achieving that. But I think the Swift components that uh, they bring to bear that make coding, for me, more efficient or uh, smaller code bases, uh, quicker coding these days, is the features that Swift brings, like uh, the functional aspects of Swift, like the um, type safety and type checking, some of the uh, code constructs of, uh, you know, the, optionals uh, some ways with the guards and iflets in order to keep your code safer, I think in some ways makes your code cleaner as well. Cool. And then what about your perspective as a developer that's worked with a bunch of different languages? Uh, what's familiar? Uh, you know, in, you've worked with Java, you've worked with, I mean, lots of different languages, you said. Uh, mm -hmm. What's sort of familiar? What's different for people coming from a totally different environment? And then now work, uh, you know, thinking about working with Swift. Yeah, there's 
some familiarity, but I think the uh, Swift has really kind of picked and chosen the key elements that they thought were the best of breed in the various languages and kind of brought them all together. So even little things like um, for loops, I believe the original Swift has a C style for loop if you wanted it, you know, for X equals whatever, X is less than something, X plus plus. You know, that structure is still there, but they're gonna get rid of that. Right, right. Because they're realizing that's old school. We don't really need that in Swift. You know, a standard for in loop works fine and you can use sequences and ranges and stuff to, um, to iterate over things. You don't need the old way, which in some ways could be a little bit confusing uh, for developers because it's this kind of artificial construct of you have to know the exact structure. Whereas I think Swift for loops, for in loops, however, read much more cleanly and they're much more understandable. What would you say to somebody who's maybe new to programming and they're looking at Swift, which is kind of, that, that's me, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, mm. uh, and they're thinking about learning Swift and getting into iOS development, um, but, but they, I don't know, they, why, what is it about Swift? Like, I guess it makes people excited, but it's like something about, it, it's so similar to like natural language, I think maybe it's easier to learn. I don't know, what is it about it? I think it's gotten buzz from two sides. One is the developer community itself, you know, embracing it and uh, raising the, the level of conversation around it that has spread outside of their normal community so that new developers are hearing about this new thing and um, it engages them and says, I wanna learn about something like this. Um, and then the other side of it is, is that it is a, uh, a language I think that's easier to visualize. You can look at it and see what it's doing and just read it and it, it speaks to you as opposed to getting in your way with syntax and brackets and, and such. So, and Wait, sorry, go ahead. I say in that way, I think it's just a more approachable yeah. From somebody who maybe even has some basic programming, maybe scripting languages or JavaScript or stuff like that, it's familiar enough that they can right. look at it and go, yeah, this makes sense to me. I can read this. I can I can know how to construct it myself. So when you first started learning Swift, you read the book and you were at DubDub and you were able to interact with all these people. Uh, how would you recommend someone to go about learning it now? Do you think that they should start by reading the book? I mean, I guess maybe it depends on their learning style, but... But yeah, what, maybe what would you recommend? In, in some ways, maybe where they come from. But I think there's some general things. One, you should connect with people. I mean, learning this in isolation can be a little difficult, uh, especially if there are principles in there that are not as familiar. Uh, functional programming um, elements that are in Swift are very, very powerful. And if you don't have a context in which to discuss this with people or connect with people who are using this language already, the ins and outs of why and how you would use this um, can elude you. Yeah, that's great. So you're working with Swift uh, pretty much every day, right? Absolutely. And uh, you're teaching or you were teaching a course at General Assembly in Santa Monica or downtown LA? Yeah. Uh, I started off, uh, once I learned Swift enough, felt confident that I'd go to some meetups and start talking about it. And I found that there were a lot of people interested. And even though I didn't consider myself an expert by any sense in the language at the time, I knew enough to be able to pass what I did know on to others. And so over time, you know, as I got better at it, I, my topics got better, you know, more detailed, but I still went to a lot of the meetups. There was a Swift meetup out in this area f that ran for many uh, months and had an opportunity to go speak at a lot of them about one aspect or another of Swift. And through that process, I met some of the GA people in General Assembly. 
And one of them particularly said, you know, we really want to get this iOS dev course up and running. Um, they had run it once already with one other person, but they were looking for more instructors and asked if I'd be interested in doing it. And I said, that sounds great. I love teaching. So the opportunity to go and work with a group of people who, whether or not they have a programming background, at least to get them through not only the language, but how do you develop an iOS app? Right. Uh, Are you still doing the course now? Yeah, we have another group uh, starting downtown. Um, May 3rd, I believe, is the first uh, date. And it's designed for all levels, but for the most part, it's people who are newer to, to the environment. We've had people in there who have no programming background whatsoever. They maybe have an idea of something they want to implement, or maybe they work with developers and they just want to understand more about uh, what they have to go through. Maybe they have a product idea, but and they want to be skilled enough to n make right decisions, to be able to understand what the process is all about. Right. And so I think that's really the the meat of the course is developing that confidence, teaching you not only what programming's about, but the language, Swift. We spend a week or two on that, and then we start diving into actual apps. We write little mini apps, and then they get more complicated, and we add new elements to the iOS development to teach you auto layout and things like that, so that you really kind of get a whole picture of what it takes to make an app. And at the end of the course, there is a final project where you kind of on your own, well, with some help. <laughs> we, how, know how many courses have you um, finished so far? So I've done the one full course, and then I've done a mini course, two mini courses now. How many students would you say that you've, um, you know, had in, in through those two courses? Uh, so, so for all three so far, it's probably been around 30, 40 students. Wow. Okay. And so it sounds like you said um, that it's very diverse in terms of background and interest. And that's kind of how my meetups are too, people from mm -hmm. all different walks of life. How are these people responding to it? Let's say one of your students is, you know, coming from accounting or coming from a music background or um, you know, mm -hmm. some other, you know, let's say theater even, or business. And uh, I'm assuming there are people like that, oh, in yeah. the course, but they're coming yeah. to you to, uh, to GA to learn iOS development for different reasons. As you said, some people want to be developers, some people want to be product developers, but want to be able to speak a language. How are they um, uh, responding to the course? Are they getting it? Or because of their background, they're just because some people think like, oh, I can't be a developer, right? That's sort yeah. of something I told myself. So how are they responding? I've definitely had students come to me and, and ask about, it seems like the whole thing's so overwhelming. How am I ever going to get there? Right. And I just tell them, take it one week at a time. Right. I'm not going to overwhelm you. We're going to teach you one little piece, and we'll get that down before we move on to the next level. And for the most part, those who have put the time in, because uh, it's not just about going to the class. You right. actually have to, outside the class, spend some time really kind of writing your code. I'll give you homework assignments, um, and then we talk about them at the next class uh, as to how that was done and look at, at answers that people have come up with. Um, so for the most part, those who put the time in, they all get so much out of it. I think everyone so far has really kind of looked at their skill set that they've got now and said, I have the confidence to do more. In fact, we had a uh, graduation ceremony for the whole GA uh, a couple months ago. So it was the whole last seven or eight months worth of people who have graduated were all there. And, you know, my students are there with their phones and they're showing them off and this is my app. This is what I did. And, and that really gives you a good feeling. It says, yes, they didn't just come there and listen. They actually learned and they're developing. That's awesome. And yeah, just like what you said in terms of going week by week, I mean, that's kind of how you... 
uh, program. You don't build a program, this fully featured program in one sitting. You build it piece by piece and you iterate and you refactor. So uh, you can apply that same principle with your education in terms of learning how to be an iOS developer. Absolutely. Um, even, even experienced programmers, I think, benefit from that of just doing it. And that you may go back to code, even as an experienced developer, look at code you wrote a year ago and go, well, I could do that so much better now, you know, yeah. or I've learned so much in that intervening time, especially since the, the platform, as you've noted, is constantly evolving. Right. So what would you say to somebody uh, if they're thinking about possibly taking a course like, at, you know, at GA versus maybe teaching themselves? Like, what's the benefit um, if it's not, you know, very apparent mm -hmm. already? What's the benefit of going, you know, teaching yourself versus taking a course like at GA? Now, I had a few students who have uh, said they tried the other approach, where they went to the, one of the online courses, and they tried to plow their way through it, and they got through some of the lessons and got so far, but they got stuck, or they didn't weren't able to ask any questions. They really couldn't. Uh, the problems that they were having weren't maybe the problems that were being addressed in the class itself. So I think it's the personal connections, the fact that they've got somebody they can talk to, ask with, work with other students um, you know, to help solve their own problems. That's what really is the difference between that and, say, just taking an online class. So where do you see the Swift language going? Are you involved at all, at least reading, keeping up with the Swift evolution? Um, I, it seems really exciting, like so many people. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of activity around it. It's kind of hard to keep up. but uh, I, I know. Once they open sourced it, you know, and they let the whole community kind of have their finger in it, and uh, you know, even if 90% of the commits are spelling corrections, at least people feel like they're contributing. Uh, yeah. to the whole process. And I think that has opened the conversation even further to seeing that this language can go so much further than just iOS or the Mac as a platform. You know, right. certainly you look at the efforts going on now to port it that's run on Linux, various versions. I've even heard of ports to other platforms so that people maybe even be able to write Android apps using Swift. Right. Um, it Swift at IBM. Yeah, and IBM's embracing it very thoroughly. So that's great to see and, and to know that it's going to have legs outside of Apple. Right. Now, Apple's obviously going to shepherd it, but that this is now something that the whole development community can embrace. Now, does that mean from like a career perspective, if you are looking for you know a, a job as a, a developer, that Swift is a good bet, so to say, or a good investment because there will be different types of jobs as a Swift developer as opposed to just being an iOS or Apple platform developer? It certainly gives you that more broader space and opportunities. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to having Swift on the back end, right? Um, so that I can take that skill set and reapply it there. And uh, basically, I could see people dedicating themselves to more to back end developments under Swift than just saying they're having to learn all the iOS frameworks. Have you got involved in that at all? I know there's a Swift. Um, at IBM, where they're doing you know, Swift in the cloud, server side, there's a couple different frameworks like Perfect, mm -hmm. um, a couple other ones I can't remember. Have you tried that at all? Have you got involved with that yet? I know it's early days, but yeah, I try to keep abreast of what's happening so that I can know what course we're going to be taking uh, here at ePage and both personally and professionally. Um, but I haven't had time to actually contribute. Are there any applications uh, that you've thought about um, that you know no one's really talked about yet? I mean, for one thing that I'm wondering uh, is could Swift potentially 
could there be some kind of swift framework that a web browser understands in terms of the client side, like the, the front user facing code? Um, hmm. I wonder if that's possible. Are there any other applications that you've thought of that you know, no one's really talking about? Well, I will say that there is a, an interesting fork happening right now from the native side of development, which has got all the excitement around Swift, to the web side of development, which has got a lot of interest around React and Ionic as a platform for developing apps. So I think as you look forward, there will probably be this dual development path. Those doing apps that are more web-based uh, languages and technologies using platforms like React and Ionic, um, serving some part of the marketplace. And then the other side will be the native coders uh, using Swift, maybe still some Objective-C, to drive the advances and the things that are happening more, not necessarily just the cutting edge, but the things that you may not be able to achieve completely or as efficiently, say, in a, a JavaScript framework. But with your hardware background, what about some interesting hardware applications? Like imagine embedded computers, uh, little mm. you know micro computers everywhere. Would Arduino's we be able to running, running Swift? <laughs> yeah, would we be able to interact and program these type of computers in Swift? Um, from the low-level microcontroller perspective, I think it's too big of a language. I think you're still going to be looking at pretty much C okay. um, as a you know raw low-level compiled language. But you know these things evolved. You know I've been around long enough to know that the simple 8-bit microcontrollers of yesteryear turn into 32-bit microprocessors that are still only cost a buck, and you can embed them. You know Intel's got some pretty impressive hardware in those Edison boards that are really not very expensive and you can embed them and you can certainly run a whole Linux Swift environment on one of those if one was uh, going to need that kind of power. Yeah, I think I saw something about Swift running on an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or something. I could definitely see that happening. So we're fast approaching the end of the episode, but before we do, I want to talk about this new project you were working on. I believe it's called Get Connected. Uh, yeah. It's for this like Lego art kind of like a nature exhibit. Is it in like South um, like Orange County or something? What what is that? It's project? up in yeah. So there's this um, uh, exhibit that goes around the country. And oh, okay. It's been in various uh, locales around the wor world, I think even, but I certainly know the ones in the U.S. Um, it's called Nature Connects, and it is a huge giant Lego sculptures. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I mean, they are incredibly impressive. Tens of thousands of bricks that take you know weeks to kind of put together and architect. And there's this amazing art, giant flowers and hummingbirds and giant bison. And I even saw a lawnmower in the garden out there. It was really kind of neat. And so uh, the local garden here in the Palos Verdes area, uh, South Coast Botanic Garden, has the exhibit right now. I think it opened about two weeks ago or so, and they have that running for a few months. I uh, just go in and you give. Uh, you can go walk around the whole garden. It's a huge garden. It's beautiful. If you've never been there, uh, anybody in the area, I definitely recommend spending the day. Yeah, uh, it seems like a great place to pay, take uh, the family, for instance. Absolutely. And so uh, we had some connections with them and thought, hey, this would be a good opportunity to get an app out there that would help enhance the whole experience of people going there. And so we wrote this Get Connected app, uh, both for iOS and Android. Um, we kind of did it for free to kind of get it out there because we, we felt like this was a community that we wanted to support. Right. 
and uh, built the app. It uses a combination of GPS and beacons, iBeacons, awesome. to kind of determine where you are through the garden. It was a complex math problem because the garden maps that we work with, you know, they're cartoon maps that are meant for brochures. Right. And they're not to scale. They're rotated. They're uh, stretched and stuff in ways that don't uh, exhibit in the real world. So translating your latitude and longitude, as we're kind of determining that, onto so that you can kind of get this real-time you are here kind wow. of picture on that map was an interesting math challenge. You know, we undertook it with the thought that, hey, this could be applied in a lot of different scenarios, but here's would be a good chance to prove that we can make the technology work. So is the Get Connected iOS app native Swift? Yes, it is. It's and all 100% Swift. And the Android app is, is Java, Android yeah. Studio, all that. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So that math problem, it was written in Swift. It's like some really interesting algorithm or... Mm -hmm. Wow, yep. cool. Yeah, it was a couple, couple pages of trig and geometry to kind of figure out all the right ways to make this work and then translate all that down into the Swift code and uh, obviously running over in Java side as well. And we envisioned this, you know, potentially could be used by any kind of outdoor exhibit space that wanted to have tours and maps, you know, maybe even Disney will call us someday and say, hey, can you do this for us? Right, yeah. right. And so are you actually using hardware beacons? Yeah. So we have implanted beacons throughout the garden um, to, as people approach them, it'll detect that they're near this exhibit or that exhibit, or here's where they are. That's a point of interest uh, within the garden to kind of pop up and give them the opportunity to interact with more information. So I'm very interested in beacons and I feel like a lot of, I don't know, I don't follow it that much, but it seems like developers are kind of sleeping on it or maybe it's just not there yet. I don't know why. Like there were some companies like Estimote who are trying mm -hmm. to make it more popular. I know Apple has used it at uh, some of their locations. I don't know. I feel like beacons are really exciting, but I feel like they haven't really got there yet. Um, you know, I, but, I think they're they're kind of on that cusp of people starting to think outside the box with them. There okay. have been a lot of standard thoughts. Okay, I'm going to map my store or I'm going to do some indoor location stuff or, right. you know, museum and exhibit stuff, you know. So we kind of use some of that standard approach in the Get Connected app. But we definitely are also thinking outside the box. I have another project that we're working on internally called Gaggle. Right. I remember yeah, and that one's coming to fruition. I'm wearing the hardware now, and uh, we're we're starting to talk to schools. But the Gaggle project is uses beacons in a completely outside the box way. Instead of having a static place where that beacon is located, we're using them as a process to keep groups of people together. Right. So that you can have like a school field trip where you've got three or four parents who are kind of the monitors for the group, you know, the chaperones, and the kids, you know, maybe first grade, second grade, fifth grade, whatever, who are kind of maybe prone to drifting off and such, uh, they all wear beacons. Uh, we give them little of the clip-ons or we have these slap bracelet versions um, that helps the group monitor the kids so that they don't drift away. Uh, it kind of gives you that safety of mind and it's a mesh networked system so that you don't necessarily have to be within range of say one chaperone. It kind of understands that this is a larger group and that we can maintain contact as long as you're within range of one of the chaperones, you're safe and within the group. Right. And did you end up using the multi-peer connectivity framework? No, this was uh, kind of a whole backend system that we developed. Um, right. Because I remember all the that... synchronization. Because the multi-peer, it, it wasn't cross-platform uh, in terms of like iOS to Android. Yeah, there's ways to make that work. And I experimented with that in another hackathon project a while ago, but it's a little flaky. It's not right. quite as reliable as we'd like it to be. Wow, so you uh, built your own solution? Yeah. Wow, so that is cool. 
And uh, it's working really quite well. We're very pleased with you know the feedback we've been getting, looking forward to working not only with schools, but we can envision um, elder groups, uh, those who are maybe um, you know, challenged, mentally challenged groups where people tend to drift away and you don't want to make sure that you can still take them outside and, and also go to tour places. guides. I just went on a tour uh, in Mexico of the, some ruins and we had to stop frequently and go back and try to find people. Perfect. Exactly. Tour groups, anywhere you want to go visit. Um, even families, you know, individuals who just say, hey, I want to make sure my family stays together. Great opportunity. So is there a particular Beacon hardware, um, you know, brand or company that you can recommend? Because I want to start playing with those. I know I can buy some on Alibaba probably, or but is yeah. there a particular one that you recommend? We've been through about a dozen and uh, looking at them from all different aspects of range and battery life and performance and form factor and such. And we finally, I think, have settled on one that we're happy with for the Gaggle project. But if you're looking to just sort of get out there and experiment, um, yeah, there's a couple IoT devices make some nice uh, units. I think the, one of the ones I like about them for us is they've got an on-off switch okay. uh, on them so that, that we have a bunch of those that we can use for easily saying, okay, let's make so-and-so get lost. We'll just turn their beacon off. Okay, cool. I'll get a link to that then uh, to put in the show notes. And, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely want to, to get one of those and start playing with it. I have some ideas with beacons. Maybe we can talk a little later about it. But I, yeah, I just think there's really something there. I'm excited. Cool. And then also that uh, algorithm that you, the math problem you solved in Swift, I don't know if it's like proprietary or something, mm -hmm. but uh, maybe you can present it one day at one of the Swift uh, or Cocoa Head meetups because um, I don't really see a lot of people talking about these really intense algorithms. Um, you know, they don't talk too much about it. It's more about, yeah. you know, kind of these applications for iOS and uh, making the code maybe more efficient. But this like real cool algorithm that you created, I think could be interesting. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to. All right. So we are over time. I wish we could talk more. Uh, you, you know, I know you have so much knowledge on Swift. Um, are people able to contact you either online or via email or your website? Absolutely. Uh, easiest way to reach me is by email. Um, and it's my last name, Ehrenberg. It's spelled A-R-E-N-B-E-R-G at epage.com, E-P-A-G-E. Cool. And I will definitely leave a link to your email in the show notes. Great. And before we end, okay, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Stay with it. It can be a little frustrating at times when you don't understand maybe all of the ins and outs of the language. But if you keep working on it and connect with other people who are maybe going through a similar journey, or, and those certainly who have gone through it already, uh, you'll get there. Beautiful. Ed Ehrenberg, thank you so much for coming onto the Swift Coders podcast and sharing your story with us. You went from programming with these punch cards uh, on a you know typewriter type of you know <laughs> size computer in the sixth grade, you know, to then uh, programming, I believe, in BASIC, and then uh, you know in college, you you know hardware was kind of calling you, and you were working for the aerospace industry and doing this Cassini project, which we got a link to that as well. And then, you know, you started working more on websites with your uh, ePage and your classified um, you know, website and, you know, then building this consulting company. And now you're doing really interesting work in iOS, Android and mobile. 
it's just a really cool story and all your knowledge with Swift, I mean, you've been learning it since day one uh, and you know, you're so active in the, the local community here in LA. So thank you so much for that. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. My pleasure. And thank you for hosting this podcast. My pleasure. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Thank you.